0: Well, our series in the book of Acts uh, continues this morning in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading this morning uh, is Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes. And from there to Patara. And having found a ship uh, crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there a ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who is one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is God's word, it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. So what's going on uh, in this uh, scripture reading that we read uh, in the midst of all of these strange names of people and places uh, along the way, what's going on is that the apostle Paul is fixed on going to a journey to Jerusalem. And he's not traveling alone, he has with him uh, a large group of Gentile converts to Christianity. Remember, he had been a missionary to the Gentiles. He'd been all through the uh, Greek-speaking world into Asia Minor. And now a number of these Greek believers, these Gentile converts, were coming with him to Jerusalem. And with them, they had a large sum of money that they had raised among the Gentile churches to take with them to Jerusalem. There was a famine coming in Jerusalem, and so they had taken an offering from all over these scattered Gentile churches to take to relieve the suffering of the poor in Jerusalem. And so Paul's story, uh, having been kind of a world traveler uh, following the call of God to all these different places, is now set on getting this band of Gentile converts and their wealth to Jerusalem as a blessing to the Jerusalem church and as a way to show that God has gathered the Gentiles into the church. Right, he was coming. This has been something that the Jews uh, had looked forward to for a very long time. You can read in places like Isaiah chapter 2 or Micah chapter 4 where it gives these visions of the nations streaming into Jerusalem to bring their tribute to the king of Israel, to bring their wealth to Israel's king. And so for Paul, that's what he saw himself as doing, that he was bringing all of the nations of the earth with their offering to Israel's king, to Jesus, and to be received as one people, Jew and Gentile, there in Jerusalem. Paul's resolute determination to get to Jerusalem uh, reminds us of Jesus' resolute determination to get to Jerusalem. Remember Luke, uh, the Apostle Luke, is the same author of uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And both stories are framed by their central character's desire to get to Jerusalem. We remember after the transfiguration, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was determined, even though he also knew that when he got there, He was going to be arrested and betrayed, delivered over to the Romans, and killed. And now Paul also has this one-track mind to get to Jerusalem, where he knows, as he learns here from the prophet Agabus, that he too is going to be abandoned, betrayed, arrested, and handed over to the Romans for his death. Paul becomes, in the telling of this story, a picture of Christ-like, sacrificial courage. It's like Luke is showing us what so much of the New Testament shows us, which is to be in Christ by faith is to become like Christ in his suffering. Right, those are the words of Paul, that he would become like Christ in his suffering. That his life uh, would mirror the life of Jesus, being willing to courageously enter into hardship, persecution, suffering, and even death for the cause of Christ, his name, and his kingdom. What jumps off the page in this story is Paul's unbelievable courage, right? When they're weeping, when they're urging him not to go, he says, why are you trying to break my heart? I'm going. I've got to go. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to die. Where do we find that kind of courage? To live our lives For something that matters You know, the paradox of courage Is that we're inspired by people of courage uh, And yet we spend most of our lives Hoping that we're never really Going to need it that much Right, we're inspired by stories of courage But we hope that that kind of courage Is never really going to be asked of us Think about the stories Of Ukrainian courage That have kind of taken the world's imagination Right, you know uh, a few months ago, none of us knew who Vladimir Zelensky was, or maybe only those who followed Eastern European politics very closely. But now you look and you go on Twitter and there's videos everywhere. You know, we have him saying when, uh, when our diplomats offered to give him a lift to get him out of Ukraine, he said, no, no, I need bullets, not a ride. Right? I'm staying and I'm fighting. And the whole world looked at that courage and was like, man, would, would I have that kind of courage if it was asked of me? The paradox is that we love comfort and ease, and yet the lives that inspire us are lives of courage and sacrifice. And our faith calls for that kind of courage and sacrifice. Right? We've seen Jesus's courage heading into Jerusalem to suffer and to die. We see in this passage Paul's courage as he heads to Jerusalem. The stories of the early church are filled with stories of the courage of men and women who chose to face uh, Roman lions, who chose to face uh, being burnt at the stake in the name of Jesus. We have stories of missionaries traveling the world, Wycliffe missionaries going all over the world who are famous for packing their belongings not in luggage but in their own coffins packing everything they owned into their own coffin and going out on a one-way trip, knowing that they were going to lay down their lives. Right, we have the words of uh, Martin Luther King as he stood in that chapel in Memphis. Remember, he said, it doesn't much matter what happens to me now. I've seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you, right? He had this idea that his calling might cost his life. The reality is that this actual laying down of our lives courageously, likely in a physical sense, won't be asked of any of us, statistically. But what remains true is that every really meaningful life is lived for something that matters more than that life, right? To live a full and meaningful life, it means that you value something more than you value your life. Or as Jesus would say, whoever would find his life must lose it, right? You have to come to a place where something captures your heart and your mind and your life more than just extending your life, something that all of your life bears witness to and that fills it with meaning and purpose, something that can instill you with the kind of courage that you're willing to treat your own life loosely for the sake of gaining something greater. And so where do we find this kind of courage? We're going to look at some things from this passage uh, where Paul can point us the way. This kind of courage first comes from the security of knowing that you are loved. Real courage, uh, real ability to risk comes from a place of security where you know that ultimately you can't lose what matters most because you are loved with an unshakable love. We see that, of course, in Jesus, right? What what enabled him to set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem is his knowledge that he was the beloved son of the Father, the, the blessing that he received at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. In John's gospel, in John 13, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he's in the upper room with his disciples, he gives us this description. He says, Jesus knowing That he had come from the Father and that he was returning to the Father, washed his disciples' feet. Right? That Jesus was able to enter into suffering, enter into trial, knowing who he was and where he came from, knowing that nothing that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem could ever separate him from the love of his Father, from his Father's approval and affection And we have good reason to believe that that's what motivated Paul as he headed into suffering. You know, Paul's life was a life of suffering. He, uh, a few times in his epistles, outlines the incredible suffering that he went through. He was shipwrecked, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was stoned. He was a man who knew suffering, who knew what it was to suffer for his calling. And I think he lets us see in Romans chapter 8 how he found the capacity to endure for his calling. And this is what he says, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Nothing inside of him, nothing outside of him, nothing that happened to him on his journey, nothing that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem could separate him from what mattered most to him, which was knowing to the depth of his being that he was loved by God in Jesus. Loved not because of his goodness, loved not because of his righteousness, loved not because of his strength, but loved because of the sacrificial death of Jesus that made it so that the Father's love for him could never be taken he knew that he had a secure base that whether he lived or died he was coming home to that place oh, there's a freedom to risk there's a freedom for courage that comes when you know that you are safely and securely loved I think about uh, one of my favorite activities in the summertime uh, going into the pool and throwing my boys in the air you know as every dad has always done and um, It's getting a little harder. They're getting heavier. They're getting bigger. Um, But there's a marked difference from what happens at the beginning of the summer, the beginning when we first get into the pool where you're getting used to it. All right, throw me, but not too high. Throw me, but are you sure you're going to get me? (laughs) And then as you see the confidence build, it's like, oh, man, I'm at it two or three feet in the air, and I still he caught me, or I landed in the pool, and it was fine. My dad was there. In the same way, we as Christians learn that our father can be counted on. He can be relied on, that we can face danger, we can face risk, we can can go boldly knowing that our Father has us, that his hands are reliable, that he'll hold us. This is a call to courage as we face the mission of God. And I think this is important. You know, so many calls to missional courage, so many calls to boldness, to sacrifice, usually have a little teensy-weensy bit of guilt and manipulation to them. You ever heard that? Kind of the, in light of everything Jesus has done for you, can't you go and serve as a missionary? Can't you serve in the nursery? Can't you uh, share your faith at work? And there's always this little bit that, hey, if you do it, God's going to love you more, right? If you do it, God's going to be just a little more proud of you than he would have if you'd been like those other Christians who don't do it. But the gospel tells us, right, not that we are bold, that we risk, that we sacrifice and love so that our father will be proud of us, so that our God will love us, right? No, it tells us that because our father is proud of us, because our God loves us, we can go boldly, we can risk, we can love, we can even lay down our lives out of a heart that already knows that it is loved and that it's secure. And so Paul rooted in this identity of knowing the security of the Father's love, was able to be bold and courageous. So he knew that. And secondly, he knew that his life had meaning because of his role in a larger story. That his life was given meaning by the fact that he had this role in a larger story in the world. Knowing that our life matters in a story bigger than our lives, frees us to have courage to play our role. Of course, Jesus, as he headed into Jerusalem, knew that he had a role to play in the Father's story. Right? Jesus' role in the Father's story was, of course, one that uh, he alone had to be the mediator, to lay down his life, to bring the world to God. His was a role uh, that we do not share, but that we point to. Paul also knew that he had a role to play in the story, that he was the great missionary to the Gentiles, right? That his role in the story was to be a disciple of Jesus and a missionary of Jesus. In a lot of ways, we find the meaning of our life uh, in the same role that Paul had, right? None of us uh, are likely to be Paul, but Paul's, Paul's role in the story was to be a part of a band of missionary disciples called on a purpose. And you and I find our same meaning in life by being part of a band, a group of missionary disciples called with a purpose. First, let's talk a bit about this missionary disciple piece. This takes a bit of a mindset change uh, for us. We have to recognize that to become a disciple of Jesus means to become a missionary of Jesus, right? There's two calls that Jesus puts on each and every life. We see him in the gospels. The first call of Jesus is to come, right? Come to me, come follow me. We see him calling his first disciples and then leaving their nets, his fishermen, their tax collector's booth. He invites every single one of us, come and follow me. But then he also says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Right? He says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so every one of us at, both ta- at all times has these two callings on our life. The call to Jesus is the call to come and the call to go. It's the call to come and to rest, and it's the call to be sent as his witnesses, his representatives. In the world to go as missionaries into our world. You live your life here as a missionary. Every bit is certainly as uh, as Russell and Amanda and their family will live their lives as missionaries in Ireland. You're called to live your life as a missionary disciple right here in Jacksonville. Now, the adjustment here is that you don't remember signing up to be a missionary, do you? Right? like A lot of us, that wasn't part of what we were sold, that we were going to have to go, that we were going to have to lay down our lives for a cause bigger than our lives. It's one thing to pack all of your possessions in a coffin and board a ship and go. It's another thing to wake up in your own bedroom and find all your stuff packed in a coffin. To recognize uh, that the call to lay down your life has landed here, that it's landed where you live and where you work and where you go to school and where you play and in your marriage and in your friendships and with your roommates and your calling, that your call to be a missionary is right here, that you wake up and recognize that, like Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that you live here as an alien and as an exile on a mission where he's put you. The philosopher Peter Kreeft puts it this way, he says, many Christians act as if we still lived in a Christian culture, in a Christian civilization, a society that reinforced the gospel, but no, the honeymoon is over, but the news has not yet sunk in fully in many quarters. You know, I remember when I went to seminary, there was kind of an unspoken hierarchy of how serious you were about your calling, how serious you were and ready to sacrifice for Jesus. And the the hierarchy went something like this. If you were a missionary, that was, you know, that was hardcore. That was serious. Um, And then even within the missionaries, there was some, you know, well, I'm going to the Middle East. I'm going to, I I wish I could tell you where I'm going, right? It's, It's secret. So there was even a hierarchy there. Then after that was planting a church. Church planners were kind of the next round of missionaries. Next round of sacrificers. And even within that, it was like, oh, you're going to Atlanta? I'm going to Brooklyn. Or you're going to Charlotte? I'm going to San Francisco, right? The, the more secular the city, the harder it was thought to be. You've never, if you want to hear people bragging about something that doesn't matter, listen to a bunch of church planners brag about how secular their city is. <laughs> I, could, I can make San Marco sound like Sudan if it's uh, for, a, for a fundraiser, you know? <laughs> Let me tell you about how badly lost my part of the city is. But so there was that hierarchy. And then underneath that was just ordinary pastors. Oh, you're going to go and you're going to pastor a church. and Yeah, that's fine. You, you know, it takes a little bit of sacrifice. But I'll never, remember, never forget uh, a few years ago uh, being in a conference of other pastors where somebody uh, really helped my calling snap into place a little bit more. When he said that every single one of us is called to be a missionary pastor. Right? The the calling there are no easy caretaker pastor jobs anymore in America. Right? That to be a faithful pastor is to be a missionary pastor. To equip your people means that you're helping to equip them to be missionary people, faced with the task of representing and witnessing to the gospel in a post Christian world. And that's not unique to pastors, right? If you're a parent, you're called to be a missionary parent. If you're a banker, you're called to be a missionary banker. If you're a neighbor, you're called to be a missionary banker, a student, a missionary student, a missionary accountant, a missionary musician. We all have a role to play in the story of God's mission. We all have a a sentness to us wherever it is that he scatters us. And the sooner that we come to terms with this, the better that we've woken up in a new world where our calling is to be a missionary disciple. Have you ever woken up in a hotel room, and it takes you a minute to remember where you are? Um, hopefully, it's just because it's a strange place and not because of, you know, the night before. But you wake up in a hotel room, and you look, oh, my bed's not quite where it normally is, and that, that's not my alarm clock, that's not my painting. Where where am I? And then you kind of slowly remind yourself, right? Oh, yeah, okay. I'm here for a conference, I'm out of town, I'm at my in-law's house, wherever it is. But sometimes when you wake up in a new setting, you have to remind ourselves, we have to remind ourselves who we are and where we are. And this means that waking up in this new cultural world, we have to remind ourselves, it wouldn't hurt us to remind ourselves every day, oh wait, who am I? Oh yeah, I'm a missionary disciple. I'm called to follow Jesus, to live my life with Jesus, and I'm called to go and to serve Jesus wherever he's put me. Because waking up in this strange cultural room that we've woken up in, there are other roles and stories that are on offer, right? There's other ways that we're tempted to think about our lives in this new world that we've woken up in. Here are just two of them that I think are particularly on offer and that we struggle to believe. Sometimes we wake up and think, I'm a contestant in a popularity contest, I'm not a missionary disciple. I'm a contestant in a popularity contest. The rest of the world may not believe much of what I believe. My neighbors may disagree, but my my basic job is to be well-liked. My basic job is to be well-liked by my neighbors, to minimize the differences between us, to vie for their approval, to vie uh, for their celebration. And so it basically enters into the world and goes, okay, the more people that I can get to like me, the better. And of course, that's an unwinnable game, right? To, to see, to live your life for the approval of others. It leads us to compromise what we believe. It leads us to water down what we believe. It leads us to try to play a role that we think other people want us to play. So one role is I'm a contestant in a popularity contest. Another role that might tempt us is the role that says I'm a combatant in a culture war. Right, we wake up and we go, no, no, I'm not a... I'm not a missionary disciple. I'm a combatant in a war for our culture. It's about power. It's about getting it or regaining it, and it accompanies always the feeling that we're losing. Right, this feeling that we 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 can't ever quite get what we used to have, and so we argue and we demonize those who disagree with us. We start to view our neighbors not as people to be loved but as enemies to be defeated. And so in spite of those two things on offer, right, I'm a contestant in a popularity contest, got to be liked by everybody, or I'm a combatant in a culture war, I've got to beat everybody, comes the call of Jesus. No, I'm a missionary disciple sent to follow Jesus in a distinctive way, to model for people what life is meant to be, life in God, life under Jesus' reign, and to love my neighbors with a self-giving love. And Paul was a part of a band of missionary disciples. I love this. Even is I mean, Paul is amazing, right? Paul is Paul. Paul is the one who wrote uh, more of your New Testament than anybody else. And yet Paul was not a one-man show. He wasn't a hero in the kind of Wild West scenario where he's just the only guy out doing his job. No, he's a part of a team, He's a part of this missionary band. Did you notice how many people in that story that we read are helping Paul along the way? He stopped here, and he visited with some people. Then he stopped there and was taken in by some people. Then he stopped over at Philip's house. Philip was one of the seven. That's the deacons that were uh, ordained for that role in Acts chapter 6. And then Philip's four daughters come, and they prophesy, and they teach him some along the way. And then This weird guy Agabus shows up and he takes off Paul's belt and he wraps it around his hands like chains and says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And Paul is going with his traveling companions, these Gentile Christians. They're going along with them and he's going with the wealth that he he brought to help uh, out of the generosity of the people to help in Jerusalem. So Paul, as great as he was, was in it with a group of people Serving as missionary disciples together, serving this cause together. And that uh, is where our calling finds uh, lands as well, that we're called not to, you know, some, when, I, when you say you're called to be a missionary, if you're like me, the first thought you say is like, oh no, this is going to end up with me having to like give tracts or Bibles to people at work. Right? Oh, no, this is going to end up with me having to, you know, walk across the street, knock on my neighbor's door, and ask them if they were to die, do they know where they would go? Right? And it might. Someday you might be called to do some of that kind of stuff. But God didn't send you alone to save the world. God sent you as a part of a body of people that might together join our voices as a witness to who God is. That was what Paul was doing. For all of Paul's great eloquence, for all of Paul's incredible teaching and preaching, the way that he, what drove him to Jerusalem was so that a people, a Jew-Gentile people could reflect the glory of God to their world. That he knew that he he couldn't embody reconciliation on his own. It takes at least two people to be reconciled, right? He needed to bring this Jew-Gentile church together to see the generosity of the Gentiles come to Jerusalem. It was always a community project. It was always us bringing our gifts together in witness and in fellowship. I love this. He says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship hear what he's saying to that Roman church. He's saying, y'all take your bodies, plural, and give it to God as a living sacrifice, right? So it's not that you've got your sacrifice and you've got your sacrifice and you're called to lay down your life and you're called to lay down your life. To put it in Southern, it's all y'all bring your lives together as one thing, as one living sacrifice, So what we're doing together as a church is lending our gifts to a common project, our voices to a common song, our lives to a common community, so that together we can embody and witness this missionary calling, right? They were were not called to be solitary and isolated missionary disciples, but a family, a band of missionary disciples, to that end, I'd like to invite you to join us. Uh, over, uh, starting the Sunday after Easter, we're going to have a class uh, during our School of Discipleship hour. That's uh, nine o'clock. Nine o'clock, right? Yeah, I'm right. Uh, over there, um, we're going to have classes for the kids and one class for all the adults. We're calling the class One Church, One Mission." because we need to retune our hearts, to recognize together that we are one body, one people on one mission, telling one story, seeking one project, right? So we're gonna cover some of the the basics of who we are and what we do as a church. What is the gospel? What is the church? What is our mission? How do we all find our place to play in that mission? How do we get involved? If you're new with us, Uh, This class will serve as your membership class, so you can go through it, and you'll be eligible to join the church if you'd like to do that. But we're really encouraging all of our members to prioritize being there for this five-week class, one church, one mission. We need this. We're not unique. I mean, nearly every church could use this kind of thing. Um, But the reality is that for the last two years, COVID for most churches set it so the only mission of the church was to continue to exist. Right? The mission is to keep the lights on. But ultimately, we need something bigger than just to keep going, right? than just to keep the, the thing alive. We need a mission of what it is that we're in together. What's this project that we're in together? What is the, the message of the gospel, and how does it move us forward? Because what we'll find as we do is that there is incredible joy to be found in being in a family together to have a role in a larger story loved by God and sent by him into his world there's joy to be found in the mission of proclaiming the good news right look there's no joy to be found remember there's two other narratives we talked about there's no joy to be found in feeling like you're perpetually a contestant in a popularity contest right there's only this internal struggle to be more and more liked and loved and accepted There's no joy to be found in being a combatant in a culture war. There's only ever the feeling like you're losing, whichever side of it you believe yourself to be on. But there is joy to be found in being an emissary of the good news. Isaiah said in chapter 52, Blessed are the feet on the mountains of the one who bears good news, who announces your God reigns. It's a verse that Paul picked up later to describe his own life. How blessed are the feet that bring good news. Our mission is a good news mission. It's a mission that fills our hearts with joy and gladness. It's a mission that enables us with joy to be able to say what Paul and those, uh, the people who were helping him get to Jerusalem said. May the Lord's will be done. May our lives be submitted to his will to accomplish his mission in this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would knit us together as your followers, that you would send us out as your representatives, your missionaries to our world. Lord, we pray that you would um, root us and equip us in your love, fill us with the security that comes from knowing that we are your beloved and delighted in children, and then send us into every corner of our city to love and to serve you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at christchurchintown.org.